Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is COO Alliance member Brian Goett, Vice President of Operations at VShred. Brian began his career as a financial analyst with a Fortune 100 financial firm doing accounting and reporting for investment portfolios. Brian eventually partnered with a group of people to form a digital marketing agency where he got to see the inner workings of many different businesses at once, which was a great learning experience. Together, they created one of the largest networking and young professionals organizations in the greater LA area. Within a year, they had over 50,000 members, sponsorships with Google and Microsoft, and were hosting sold-out events at top LA venues. Brian joined VShred in January of 2018 and was the second employee. A few years later, he became the VP of Operations, overseeing finance, HR, CX, supply chain, business intelligence, legal and compliance, and more. VShred is over 100 full-time employees now, along with a large team of personal trainers from across the country and a phone support and sales team down in Texas and an offshore team in the Philippines. Outside of work, Brian loves to be outdoors, being active, cooking and practicing holistic, healthy habits. This year, Brian was blessed with a bunch of new family members. He became an uncle and unexpectedly discovered a half brother via 23andMe, which has been the most incredible blessing for him and his family. So Brian, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the uh, discovering the brother, half brother. That's pretty amazing. How'd that all happen? Um, I took the 23 and me test because I wanted to figure out if I was gluten intolerant or, you know, like I was in it for more of the health aspects. I wasn't even thinking about the, the actual, you know, uses of, of this DNA database that they're building. And, um, I, I looked at the results and it was cool. And then a year later, I got a notification after not looking at it for a year and it was said, Hey, you have a new relative. And I thought that was interesting. And I opened it up and. I, there was this person that had the DNA <clears throat> matching of somebody who'd either be an uncle or a half brother. And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure I know all my, I, my uncles. And I, uh, I think I would have known if I had a half brother and, and he met, he eventually messaged me and I messaged back and we got to talking and uh, come to find out my, my dad, when he was in college, he met a girl and, they got together and, you know, it was the seventies in college. There was not a lot of communication. Uh, long story short, because of her religious background, her, her parents were very adamant that she give the baby up for adoption and my dad was never informed. So he wow. had no, yeah, it was, it was a little, it was, it was weird at first, but every, you know, everything, every, every aspect of the story, it, it went in the absolute most perfect direction that it could have gone. Um, you know, this was, this was years before my parents had met. So there wasn't anything like that. <laughs> um, and the moment my dad found out that Ryan, my, my brother, um, existed, he, he was like, he, first he was shocked and had to kind of understand it. You know, my, it took me a while just to, get my dad to understand, wait, you submitted your DNA to a website and they told you you had a brother? Like, is, is this a scam? <laughs> and uh, I'm like, no, no, it's not a scam. And, but the, uh, 
the day we finally all were able to meet in person because it all happened during COVID. So we weren't able to even meet physically at first. Wow. It was, it was just instant love. Like my dad jumped up out of the, the booth. We were at a restaurant. They hugged instantly. My mom was tearing my, <laughs> I was tearing up. Like that's amazing. It was just, yeah, it was the coolest. It was just the coolest experience that I've ever had. Like I'm getting chills just thinking about it. Um, and that was about a, that was about a year ago at this point. And since then, um, his adopted family and my family, we've done barbecues together. He came on vacation with us this year. I, I just, I spent an hour on the phone with him the other day. That's uh, super cool. Yeah. He's, you know, he, it, and it's the whole nature versus nurture thing. Like I, it's so crazy to me. There's so many similarities. We career wise, he's, he's me just more advanced, <laughs> you know, like he's a few years older. And so like, he's done the things that I want to do. Like he's somebody that I've been able to learn from. Like I've never, I, I, I grew up the oldest. I never had an older brother. And so wow. it just, yeah, the nature versus nurture thing is, is real for sure. I mean, you can see it across siblings. You can see it across cousins and aunts and uncles. It's crazy how that stuff is real. So that's really a neat experience. And well, yeah, I was able to see it across siblings that had never met. Yeah. It, it, just, it, it blew my mind, but. Well, and I'm glad it all went well as well. I mean, it could obviously go in the other direction too. Yeah. So tell me about this, um, the organization that you built out in, in LA. I mean, taking a, taking a business with, um, you know, like a membership kind of business and you took it to 50,000 people. What was that business all about? So we had started the uh, digital marketing agency where we were doing social media campaigns and uh, just basic branding development. And we were going to a lot of networking events to try to meet clients, get, you know, familiarized in the, the Silicon Beach space, they called it. Um, and we just kind of, it, it light bulb clicked one day. Why are we going to two, three events a week, <laughs> paying these entrance fees? Why don't we just have our own event? And so the first one, I think we had three people show up and it was in, it was at a happy hour at a beach bar in Hermosa Beach, California not the kind of place where you have a professional networking event. And uh, that was event one. And within a year, we were having it at um, some very, very, you know, nice venues in Santa Monica. We had lines out the door. We we just, we created a, a free event and we didn't collect any money from any of the people coming. And we partnered with the bars and said, hey, you know, we'll, we'll bring all these people here. Give us a, a cut of the bar and you know, they'll all come in for free. And we kind of started off that way. And <clears throat> then uh, some Google employees came to the event. And the next day, somebody from Google reached out to us and said they wanted to sponsor. And once we had kind of our name attached to that Google name, it kind of just took off from there. <laughs> Very <laughs> but, cool. Uh, yeah. Could you have done that if it was a paid organization or was the leverage because it was unpaid and with sponsorship? It was definitely unpaid. It was sponsorship. I mean, I'm sure people, we would have been able to build attendance, but the the fact that those first six months or so were just kind of completely free, and we were telling everybody and anybody we could, we were getting thousands and thousands of signups. Not everybody would show up because you know everybody signs up for a free event, and then when the time comes, maybe they'll go, maybe they'll not. But for the following month, we were able to email them. We had their information. We were able to say, hey, we're doing another event, come. And so we just built up this um, this community and we started doing private Facebook groups and building it that way and took the happy hour events, started doing uh, paid panel discussions, 
and more uh, educational type events as opposed to just networking events. And we were able to kind of build it up from there, but it was a really cool experience and, and got to, got to meet a lot of interesting people. When I look back, I, I can think just off the top of my head, one or two companies that are now, you know, multi-billion dollar companies where I met the founders at that event. Well, wow, yeah. yeah. I remember that in the early days of the dot-com era in the late nineties when, um, or mid to late nineties, when we were going to some of the, the networking events and that was the style they did back then. So what did you pull from, from running that organization into what you're doing with Shred now? Are there any, any of the, the systems that you used or any of the ideologies or the ways that you grew that business that you're still using today in Shred? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, that we, when, when we started it, we didn't have any money. There was no, you know, everything was kind of guerrilla style marketing. We had to just spread our influence across the web and, and, and cultivate kind of that, that, uh, that conversation and within the, the private groups that we had and then build it up into this thing with, you know, in this digital landscape with people that didn't know each other. And on the V-Shred side, we have our private member Facebook groups and we have grown that into almost a million people are, are I think are in, in those private Facebook groups. Wow. And, and keeping that conversation on point, keeping, you know, and, and with, with V-Shred, it's a much different, it's a much different goal that the, the, the community is trying to get from, from what they were doing there. Now, when it was, you know, you're trying to network and build business, but with V-Shred, it's, you know, we're dealing with health and fitness. We're dealing with something that is very, very personal to people. And it's, it's something that is very close to the heart. And you've got to, in this business, you have to take that into account. And is, is the membership community that you've got, you know, the million people on, on the social platforms, do you monetize that base by, um, you know, bringing them into your funnel or are you, gonna, are you planning to, you know, start to charge for some of those as well? So that, that, that group is actually uh, customers only. So you get access to that group once you become a customer. And so we've, uh, we've leveraged it in a lot of different ways. One, it's like the main group is just, it's, it's where all of our people, the people doing our programs, it's where they go. It's where they talk about the programs. All of our trainers are in there answering questions. Um, our trainers do live videos, live Q and A's every day, uh, live workouts in the morning. So that is, that is the whole basis then for V-Shred is that community and you build everything off of that. What was it, what was it like in the early stages of building that out when you didn't have enough members to make that community sticky or to make it engaging? You know, I remember when we were starting the CO Alliance, well, even last year in the CO Alliance, because the model was changing when we launched the, the internal Slack for our members to communicate with each other, we didn't have enough members for many of the posts to go anywhere. And now anybody puts a post up and instantly there's comments and likes and, you know, um, emojis coming up. So what did you do to get the, the base kind of excited when it was still pretty early? Well, uh, when, because again, because it was, it, it's, it's paying customers. Um, it was kind of easy to, to get them motivated because for, well, for two reasons, one, our, our front end, our acquisition channel, our acquisition strategies are extremely effective. I mean, when we when we launched that, and at that point in time, we were anywhere between five to ten thousand new new customers a day, and they were all uh, they were pretty much all going into these groups. It was the first wow. all the action once you got in there, and so most of them going in there, 
you know, they just got a new, a new fitness program. It's, it's a lot of people that aren't, you know, they're, they're not gym savvy. They're not, they're not health savvy. So they had a lot of questions. They, they created all the diet, all the communication. It was, it was instant. And we had uh, our trainers in there as well, answering those questions in real time. And when we launched it, you know, we were like, Hey, this is, has to go well, our, our trainer team, like, you know, make sure, make sure we're answering, make sure we're giving good feedback, good questions, like good answers to questions. Like don't let anything slip. Don't, don't let any questions go unanswered. And obviously, you know, any business, they never want to see questions go unanswered. But again, going back to the type of product that we're dealing with, the type of community that we're dealing with, an unanswered question is instant loss of motivation. It's instant, like, I don't know how to do this thing. I can't get an answer. All right. I, I give up. I quit. You know, it's, it's, I was, I was actually a customer myself two years before I, I joined the company. Oh, well, I, I was Nick and, and Kevin and Vince and Roger, the four partners of the company, they were friends of mine before I, I joined. And uh, when they were getting off the ground, they knew that I wanted to lose some weight. And so Nick called me up and said, Hey, you know, we've, we're trying to get this, this business up and running. We need friends and family to do the program so we can get some good before and after pictures. Um, would you want to do it? And I said, yeah, no, definitely. I, I, really, I need to lose some weight. And, you know, <laughs> Nick, it, it makes me laugh thinking back because he, he was like, all right, but if, if you do this, you know, uh, you got to take it seriously. We got to have some skin in the game because I want you to bet me your car that you're going to finish the program. He was like, not that you're going to finish any amount of weight, not that you're going to, you know, complete uh, anything or lose a certain percentage of body fat, just that you will stick to the program. That's the bet. And I said, I laughed and said, okay, yeah, sure enough. You can have my car. At that point in time, I, I, I didn't take him seriously. Ha ha funny. Yeah. You can have my car if I don't do this. Knowing Nick as well as I know him now. He would have taken it. He hundred percent would have taken it. He would have showed up at my door expecting the keys to my car. <laughs> has that, has that culture permeated the, the entire organization, like from the, the employee and the operation side and into your customer side as well? Do you have that kind of like, we're not kind of fucking around here. Big time. You know, that, <clears throat> that tenacity and, and the way we just aggressively push towards goals. It's, it's something that we protect, you know, that it's a okay. I've worked at a lot of different places. I've consulted for different places and, and getting a culture like this, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to get in the first place and it's even harder to maintain. And uh, it's something that, you know, we've never taken lightly and it's something that we, we take, we take very seriously. And so, yeah, we, we protect it with everything we can. Interesting. I like that. All right. So tell us what V shred, the, the kind of the core of V shred right now, and then where are you taking the organization? The, the core of V-Shred in, in regards to your um, revenue, your revenue model and, and kind of the, the, the core focus is, is it just product? Is it just service? Is it just training? Is it the, the community? What are the kind of core revenue models and where are you growing the organization going forward? So when, when it started and when I came on board in early 2018, um, it was just, just V-Shred and that was digital programs and the, the uh, personal coaching was just getting off the ground. At that point, I think we had three trainers. Um, and so they were doing customized programs and it was mainly all static digital programs. And then in 2019, we launched uh, Sculpt Nation, the supplement side. And 
that really, that took off really fast. And, and it was interesting because in 2020, uh, it went from being, you know, predominantly all Vishra digital based to almost 60% uh, e-commerce supplement based. And that was just, it, it, it was such a big change into the day-to-day operations. I mean, you know, we didn't have to factor in cogs. We didn't have to factor in inventory before that. These were all right. new things uh, that, you know, e-commerce has that, that, that digital products don't have. And we saw that there, we saw firsthand the profitability and how that inventory and, and cost of it sold affects your bottom line, your EBITDA. And so we took a step back and said, okay, we got to, where do we want to focus and reprioritize? Because there is, you know, there's a lot going on with the supplements. They are moving fast, but the digital is still more profitable and digging into the numbers a, a little bit deeper as I was able to see, okay, well, also on top of that, a Sculpt Nation customer isn't necessarily going to become a V-Shred customer because somebody's buying supplements. They're n- not always looking for a program. They're maybe a little, a few steps further along than, than sure. a V-Shred yeah. Yeah, a B-Shred customer is somebody who is ideal to go from the program to the supplements. And then this last year, uh, we added on the clothing line as well. And that is, it's, it's small, but it's grown fast. And, you know, that again is another arm of the V-Shred customers where you got your, your program, your supplements, and now you need some workout clothes. It's, it's like the whole, you know, if you just bought golf clubs, you don't, you're not going to stop there. Now you want to buy golf shoes, clubs, tea or tees, balls. So and- did, I, did I hear you right that your focus then is going back to growing the program because knowing it leads into everything else or are you focusing on growing the supplement part of the business? We're, we're, focused, on, we're, we're focused on growing both, but V-Shred as the primary mode of entrance and really trying to develop a a entire ecosystem, uh, the whole health and fitness lifestyle through that, uh, sure. that V-Shred system. And we're working on a, a redesign of our app and an entirely new approach to how our app was set up and a new uh, subscription-based app model that's going to create really that ecosystem of, of content and lifestyle. And it's not just going to be, here's your program, we have supplements available, but the whole lifestyle, like with, when it comes to health and fitness, it doesn't just stop with your diet and exercise. It's how are you managing stress? How are you, how's your sleep? Are you doing any mindfulness practices? Are you meditating? Are you journaling? It's, inter- it's interesting because so many people tend to be going or seem to be wanting to go into the supplement space. I think it's like 10 years ago, they should have gotten in. Like I'm coaching uh, four companies right now that are deep in the space, in the, in the athletic supplements space. Um, I won't mention their names just because this podcast is about you, not them, but you'd know, you'd know the names of probably a couple of them. And you guys, I think have done it right in that you focused on the community first, and then you have this as almost a vertically integrated company. Was that by design or like, did you, when you started V shred, was that part of the early model or did you just say, Hey, we've got all these people. What else can we sell them? Yeah. To be honest, it was, it was that, you know, we, we knew that supplements were very profitable. They were, they were blowing up and okay, we're already doing the program. Supplements make sense too. But then we never kind of considered at first it was, Hey, let's make these couple different brands and eventually we can spin one off or, or, you know, make them keep making new brands after that and just have this kind of farm system of brand building. Uh, but 
seeing it, it grow and how they do interact with each other, it just it made so much more sense to develop this all-encompassing ecosystem. You know, it seems to yeah. it seems to be consumer trends. That's where it's going. Is people want a one-stop shop. They want they don't want to have the nine different apps for one thing. They want to be able to go to one app and get all the things. Well, and they are and they are starving for community, and you're giving them that community as well, right? You're giving them that with your actual social platform where they're connecting with each other, and, and I think there's some there's some power in that. So. How do you forecast and and build out the operations of a business where you're adding five to ten thousand clients in a day? Like, how do you plan around that? <laughs> Very, uh, it's tough. Um, it, it, our, our our front end is is again going so so strong that they're able to do that, and it's it really it, they're pulling these levers in real time on based on Facebook prices, based on, you know, Facebook ad model. And some days it could be 10,000. Some days it could be 5,000. It's all dependent on, you know, what's happening on Facebook that day to me. Um, and so there was a lot of volatility in those numbers and that, especially from the supply chain side was difficult to plan for. And, uh, you know, if you have a, a, stable growth rate or even just a stable amount of inventory that you're moving, you can plan pretty, pretty well around that. But when July can be, you know, a hundred thousand order a month and August can be a 60,000 order a month, because again, the volatility is not just day by day. It, 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 it kind of looks like a stock chart almost when you, when you think about it, mm-hmm. it, it can be, it, that, that could be hard to, to forecast around. And so, we had to kind of throw out some traditional models of uh, inventory planning and just make it customized to our, our business. So one, we never ran out, but two, weren't so overstocked that uh, we had too much capital tied up in, in inventory, you know? And how are, how are you funding the, the supplements business? I mean, the, the, the membership business, I guess, is really largely cash flow, right? You, you understand your cost for acquisition and, and um, how are you funding the business? privately funded? Yeah. So one of the things I loved about the company and was a real self, like it it was just something that I, I hadn't seen. And I was really interested in being a part of when I joined uh, was the fact that it was completely self-funded. There's been no uh, like venture capital cast. No, the the four guys started this company, they put a thousand dollars in the business bank account day one, and there hasn't been a cash injection since. And so that to me was just mind blowing how they were able to pull that off. Uh, and the supplement side was funded directly from that. It was all, it was all self-built internally. Interesting. All right. So I think often when companies go through fast growth, they tend to throw people at the customer service side of the business, but it's really inefficient, right? The, the, how do you prevent yourself from needing more and more customer service people when you scale this quickly? What, what do you do? What's, what systems do you put in place? How do you think about your products and services? So you don't need to just keep throwing bodies at customer service. Well, or do you for, yeah, we did, we, we did for a part of the time. I mean, it was, it was growing so fast that the only option was just to get more people to answer more tickets. And, 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 and at the same time, trying to be proactive in really taking in that data, figuring out, okay, why, 
why do we have this many support tickets? Why, why is there a need for this many customers to be reaching out to us after they purchase something? Once we figured out those problems, they were, they were easy to fix. And uh, about a year and a half ago, I believe, we brought on our senior director of customer experience who came from some amazing companies and he's been a blessing to have on the team. He's, I, I love working with him and I was, an, I was not an expert in CX. I, I was managing it and managing it well enough to keep the lights on. But when, when he, he was brought on board, it was such a weight off my shoulders because I was able to say, all right, you're the captain now. <laughs> you know, like he, uh, he, he's been a great addition to the team and he's really, really fixed that problem and, and he's optimized. And um, actually we've been, it's, it's interesting because, you know, most people, they go the, the offshore route because it's cost effective and right. or we went the offshore route, but uh, it was email based support only, which is not how people nowadays, that's not the optimal customer experience. Um, and so it's interesting because while the offshore uh, route is more cost effective on the surface, he really quickly showed me, no, 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 sure. The onshore support is a little more expensive, but they're closing tickets at a rate of four to one and their one ticket close rate is, is three to one and, and showed me all these metrics. And so it actually is much cheaper to keep it onshore. Um, and we are still utilizing both now, but, uh, but the, the overwhelming majority of our support is onshore. It's phone-based, it's chat-based, it's email-based. Well, I think where you started was you actually look at the root cause of the problem. Like, why are all these customers contacting us and how do we fix that, right? And that's really the core that I think most companies need to remember. I, I was listening to um, a friend of mine, Ryan Halliday, who, who wrote, um, you know, The Ego is the Enemy and Trust Me, I'm Lying. He's a prolific writer. I have seven um, books stacked up right next the, to me. Yeah, he's great. So we're, we're in a mastermind together called Mastermind Talks. And, and he mentioned years ago that the only reason customer service is even needed is one of four reasons. Either your product sucks, your service sucks, you overset expectations with the customer, or the FAQs on your website aren't complete. And when you think about it, that if you if you could replace one customer service person, maybe that's $45,000 a year, spend $45,000 fixing the problems and you could replace 10 people, right. you know, spend $100,000, $200,000 fixing the problems and you could you could replace 50, 60 customer service people. It's it's extraordinary to think about because when do we ever phone Amazon with a problem? Right. Never. Never. Right. Unless you're selling stuff on Amazon and then it's like every eight. 13 minutes. Um, that's a whole other issue. All right. So in your, in your role, um, you know, in, in VP of operations and, and you're going to be in a transitioning role that we'll talk about in a few minutes, but in your role right now, what has it been like taking the company from the kitchen table to, you know, over a hundred employees and, and some international, what have you had to learn and, and how has the company had to change in that time? Uh, I've had to learn a lot and, <laughs> This being a part of this group uh, has been a huge, huge piece of that learning experience. And it's helped me field a lot of the questions, a lot of the unknowns. Um, and I was actually just talking to Nick last night and telling him that, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. The, I've had some really cool experiences over the years since I started my career, moving from finance to, to consulting to digital marketing. I've got to see a lot and work with a lot of really special talent and 
it, but it wasn't really until this, I came here that all those past experiences started really manifesting into like things I could utilize. I, I, I don't have the, the proper words to explain it, but it's like the things I had to do here overseeing everything and making the decisions like it, it took all those past experiences and tied them all together in a way that made sense well some of it i think is when when you're in a mastermind group of your tribe like when when you go to an, an event with filled with ceos you start thinking like a ceo but you're coming to events every month for the ceo alliance surrounded by other coos you start seeing the business from that perspective and it, it just gets a lot clearer very quickly right and I think we also sometimes don't even know the questions to ask. So you learn from questions others are asking, you know, you kind of absorb through that. So um, is there anything specific you've had to work on in your skill set as a, as a VP of operations over the last couple of years? Definitely my, my communication, my leadership, you know, I, I've always been a very good, like one man army type thing, working as a individual consultant and, I, even on consulting teams, you know, I was part of a, a, a small group of, of people or, or individual. I was an individual going in and I had to solve a problem and it was on me to solve it. And I didn't have my own team to leverage. I didn't have additional resources to leverage. And when you're in a position of leadership, taking a, like going into hiding and, and, you know, nose to the ground and I'm just going to, you know, barrel through this problem. Uh, that doesn't work well. You know, and, and it just, it was, it was so outside of like my core strengths that it, it scared me a little bit to, to have to do that. And really it was, uh, it was getting over that fear and, and figuring out how to delegate, how to properly communicate with my team and say, no, I, I don't have to do this all myself now. I've got very, very capable people surrounding me that I hired specifically to do this thing. So. That's, that was was one of my big ones as well. Wasn't the I, I knew how to delegate, but I was often running so fast that I didn't slow down to delegate. You know, now I now I realize it needs to get done, but not by me. And um, I have a client that I used to coach years ago who did something pretty fascinating. Every Sunday night, she would plan out her next week, and then she would come up with all the projects or tasks she needed to do and assign a, a number of minutes for every task. And then before she started working on any of them, she delegated 80% of the minutes. So if she had like 50 hours worth of stuff, she'd delegate 40 hours worth of tasks. And then she'd start on the ones that were left. I'm like, fuck, that's amazing. Like what a, what a <laughs> yeah, it's like such a great little methodology, right? All right. So you're going through some changes right now. You mentioned in our, um, in our warm up when we were just coming on that you're going to be moving from the, the CEO role into the chief of staff role. So what's that all about and and walk us through what you see as the differences between the two roles um so taking a step back and kind of how we we got to this point uh we were looking at the the personality profiles of all the executive team members and it's there's like six people that are in this uh quadrant of high dominance high, high action, the, the, the entrepreneurial CEO type, everybody's over in that corner. And then there was me <laughs> on the opposite end by myself. And, uh, they, before that I was trying and they were trying to get me to be more like mm. that dominant side and, uh, working with, uh, working with some coaches and, and advisors, 
they were like, no, 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 hang on. Stop. Why are you trying to, why are you trying to bury that, that difference? You, you need to leverage that. That is, that is the, the lack of, of um, diversity on this, you know, on, on this chart is, is part of your problem. It's why you guys are struggling at certain things is because you're not leveraging these other sides of the quadrant. And, and so when Nick and I realized that we're in a way each other's polar opposites, his, his core strengths are my core weaknesses and vice versa. We, we work really, really well together. And when we put our brains on one problem, we see it from the opposite sides and through a couple different experiences, we just saw so much power in that. And, you know, this is going to give him as a CEO, 25, 30% of his time back. And it's going to make my time a lot more effective. And it just, it's, it's something we're both really excited for, you know, the, we've been talking about it for a few months now, gearing up for it. I'm, we've, we've got the, the role kind of laid out how we, how we want it to, to function. And we are actively, I'm actively interviewing and then looking for kind of my backfills. Who's going to, who's going to fill that role behind me, but ultimately it's going to be me as Nick's proxy, his, his right hand, you know, if he, if there's two meetings at once, he can't be in one, I can go to the other and, speak on his behalf. And when he has an idea, a big vision, he can go into the meeting and say, all right, this is what we're going to do, blah, 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 blah. And all right, cool. Brian now comes in and says, okay, Nick just laid out a million different things with the big vision. Let's structure this. Let's organize it. What are the steps? What's the sequencing? So, yeah. So what, so what are the roles and responsibilities of the chief of staff then in your company? Like give us like the top three things that you'll be doing. And go ahead. Uh, special projects, um, just departmental optimization and cross-departmental communication. Okay. The first big initiative that I'll be doing with this role is really an all-encompassing internal audit, going department by department, working with every team so we can get a a workflow of all the processes, all the systems, everything that, that they're doing, how they work departmentally and then what deliverables or uh, what deliverables coming in or going out are connect with other departments and, and how do they connect? Are they connecting in the right ways? The way team A is doing something and delivering it to team B, is that the same way team C is delivering it to team B? So how is that different from what a COO would do? Like, would that not be something that, that might be on a COO's plate? Or how do you guys see this as different from something that a COO would do? It's it's very similar. It, it it I think with this role, it's it's very ambiguous. It's still it, there's not a very clear single definition of what this role is, and so it can be it can be very very much like a, a COO, and it can be very much like just the person who runs the office of the CEO. And in in our case, and the way we want to utilize it, it's going to lean heavily towards the COO side. Um, and I, the, the main difference being that the COO has a department and teams that run the day-to-day operations, whereas the chief of staff does, doesn't have a, a team, a department. I, I will have a team and we, we're, we're still talking about that, but it's going to be a very small kind of internal Navy SEAL team is how it goes. Yeah, yeah. It's so like, like almost like a Navy SEAL project team versus a bunch of operational people doing daily, yearly, monthly projects. That- right. So, you know, if, if 
one of our departments is is struggling or they're not performing well or just you know they have some clunky systems and that's not like that's not their uh expertise is to build processes and systems this team will be able to go in help them solve those problems like the way we want it the way we want it is when i as the chief of staff go into a department they're like Brian's here, you know, like it's like, we've got some help. We've got some assistance and I can go in and kind of help consult their problems, help put together the blueprint of how you get from where you're at to where you're trying to go. And, but at the same time too, it's, it's, you know, I'm the, the eyes and ears in the back of Nick's head. And, and so it's, it's, Oh, thank God Brian's here. But also if people are trying to, uh, not, not saying that this happens, but, you know, if anybody is underperforming or trying to hide under the radar, it's like, I don't know, Brian sees everything. And if he's not seeing it, Nick sees it, you know? And yeah. so uh, it just, we're really excited on with how it's going to, how it's going to help develop the company. You know, we're like what I was talking about before with maintaining and, and really protecting that culture. This is a big way that I think we're going to help facilitate that. And now you're going to have to go out and backfill your roles. You're going to have to go out and recruit and, and onboard your replacement. Right. Are you looking internal for that? Or are you looking external for that? We're uh, looking externally. Um, you know, I, I built this department up from just myself and I'm, I'm proud of that. And I think I've done a pretty decent job, but I, at the same time, I know I'm not the expert. I know there's somebody who can do it a million times better than me. And I really want to bring somebody with a fresh perspective, really, really seasoned experience who can help take what I've built and really perfect it, you know? And um, how are you socializing that internally? Like with, with a hundred employees, there's gotta be a bunch of people that are putting their hands up or that will be putting their hands up saying, Hey, can I do the job? How are you going to tell them that they're not qualified or they're not ready or no, you're looking external? Well, um, we have, we actually haven't uh, announced this to the company yet, which that's coming up real soon. So depending on when this airs, we're going to have to make sure we get that out ahead of time. <laughs> uh, but I've, I've spoke to, um, you know, some of my, my directors, my, my leads about it, and they're all experts in their own field, but at the same time, the, this just encompasses so many different departments that, no, I, nobody that I've, I've talked to yet has, uh, they haven't expressed interest in, in that and they kind of see it from the same perspective as I see it. Like, yeah. I don't know how familiar you are with the, the whole Netflix culture deck that circled around online for, for years. Yeah, I remember the woman that pushed that out. Yeah. It was, it's very cool. If you ever, if you get a chance to read it, definitely take a look, but you know, they say something in there that we've, we've taken and, and made part of our culture. It's like, you know, we're not a, this business, we're not a family. Like you get to choose your family and their blood, you're stuck with them. <laughs> uh, we're a pro sports team. And so if I can get LeBron to play point guard on my team and I'm the point guard right now, well, I, I want LeBron because I want a championship. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're, you're in it for the, for the good of the company versus the good of your own self. Right. All right, let's go back to the 22-year-old Brian Goat starting out in his career. What advice would you give yourself as a 22-year-old that you know to be true today? Invest. <laughs> <laughs> um, if, I, if I could go back and talk to my 22-year-old self, I would start that conversation with a giant stack of books. 
Um, I, when I was 22, I was kind of career focused, but mostly just social and friends and party focused, which, you know, a 22 year old can't blame them for that. But if I had started reading some of the books that I've read now, if I had started reading them earlier, focusing more time on developing myself, mm. I, I don't know how much further in my career I'd be, but everything I've done in, in this company, you know, I've, everything I've developed into getting to where I'm at now into this role where I'm, you know, moving to the chief of staff, it's, you know, it's a C-level, C-level title. That's, that, that is an accomplishment that I, I wasn't sure if I'd ever, I'd ever get. That's a huge, you know, it's a huge milestone for me. And it was, it was the books and, and all the life lessons I took from those thousands of hours of tutorial YouTube videos, joining uh, groups like this. And then really it, it's read more books, leverage your network and, and value experience, value wisdom and experience because you're cocky kid. You don't, you don't have experience. It's, it's, I love that. By the way, thank you for sharing that. I, I, when you said invest, I thought you were going to go into investing, you know, money into the markets and, and investing for the future. And I love that you was actually more investing in yourself. I actually launched a course earlier this year called invest in your leaders. And it's the 12 core leadership skills that I believe every manager and every leader needs to get better at. And I just priced it in a way that it's almost irresponsible for people not to sign up for it and take it right. It's the stuff around situational leadership and coaching and delegation, all the skills that we need. But yeah, I agree. I, I was very fortunate early in my career that I had a company that really focused on growing me. And um, I think it's pretty perceptive that you saw that in yourself. You're still young, so you still got a lot of time ahead of you. So congrats on your on your new role. Congrats on what you've done with Vshred. And thanks for being a great member of the CO Alliance as well. Thank Brian Goet, Brian Goet, the VP of Operations for Vshred. Thanks for sharing with us today. Thank you. Take care. It was a pleasure. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.